Good morning. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who measured out its dimensions? Surely you know. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I speak of things I don't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen, and I will speak, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you, and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourself. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You've not spoken the truth about me. Job, my servant, has. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortune and gave him twice as much as he had before. this morning. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to the Old Testament, to Job 38. And we're going to look at the sections that uh, Donna's just read for us. Uh, In case you're a guest this morning, just so you know what's happening, uh, today we're finishing our series called Life in Utz. It's a study of Job's journey through suffering. And if you've missed any of the parts of it, I really encourage you to go online and listen and catch up, because I think all the parts speak to the whole Uh, and understanding Job's total experience. But here's what we know about Job in case you've missed some of it. We know that he was a wealthy ancient Near Eastern businessman with a very large family living in this land uh, called Utz, which was a a big region just east of the Jordan Valley. Uh, We know that he was morally upright. He was highly respected by his community, and uh, he loved, worshipped, and served God faithfully. But one day, nearly everything Job had was taken away from him, you know, without warning, through a series of bizarre, tragic events, he lost his children, he lost his possessions, he lost his, his wealth, his health, his status, and had no idea why. People around him claimed it was all his fault. 
that he had done something really, really bad to make himself the target of divine retribution. His wife said, God's against you, you know, curse him and die. His friends said, you know, who being innocent has ever perished? Good people don't suffer, Job. Those who plow evil and sow trouble, reap it. You, clearly, you've done something sinfully twisted. God is judging you. If you want them off your back, figure out what you did and then fix it. You know, be a better person. Have more faith. But, you know, Job wasn't buying any of that. Despite the harsh accusations and moralistic opinions, he refused to, uh, to curse God and he maintained his innocence. But still, like anybody else, uh, he questioned what was happening to him. And in the midst of his pain, Job prayed, Lord, you know, everyone's saying I must be a wicked person. Uh, tell me if I am. Let me know what I've done wrong. But I think we both know I've done nothing to deserve this suffering, this kind of suffering. It, it makes no sense. He says, I want vindication. I want an explanation. I want to hear from you. Let the Almighty answer me, he says. And so Job was understandably frustrated because throughout his painful ordeal, everybody was giving their perspectives. Everybody was offering him their, their opinions. And God remained silent. But now as Job approaches the end of his rope, alone, destitute, and near death, God finally speaks to Job. And what he says, what God says to him is important. In chapter 38, verse 1, we're told the Lord spoke to him out of a storm. And uh, this opening statement is really easy to overlook, but we shouldn't because it's important. Here's why. It's all about the terms. The terms that are used tell a story. For example, the Hebrew term Lord reflects the the self-existing, all-powerful nature of God. The I am that I am, the creator of all things. The Hebrew term that's used for storm here carries the idea of a serious meteorological event. I mean, we're not talking about a pleasant little rain shower but a violent and scary tempest. And then the term that we translate spoke is is really interesting because it's different from the term used in chapter 1 when God spoke to Satan. The term used there referred to a one-way interaction between a superior and an inferior. But here, as God addresses Job, the term speaks, um, the term means to speak in a way that welcomes interaction, welcomes a response. And so, in short, by way of terminology, the text indicates that out of the all-powerful, terrifying storm of God's holy and divine presence comes a loving and gracious invitation to dialogue and to help his servant Job uh, recognize his limited knowledge and limited perspective as a human being. In essence, God is going to deal with the issue of theodicy. Theodicy is just one of those fancy words that philosophers and theologians like to use. It comes from two Greek terms, uh, theos meaning God and dike meaning justice, so God's justice. Theodicy is the answer to the question of why God allows evil and suffering. And really that's Job's basic question, right? I mean, he, he wants to know why all the pain, you know, why he's gone through all this pain. And it's the question a lot of people ask. They ask it today, you know, if God is, if God is good and all-powerful, why is he allowing suffering? especially why is he allowing it to me, right? And so through this terrifyingly wonderful storm, God speaks and says to Job, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then God proceeds to talk about all the wonders and the intricacies of the natural world. He says, he goes, Job, let me ask you something. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? Who stretched a measuring line across it? On on what were its footings set or Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea when it burst forth, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits to it and set its doors and bars in place, and I said, this far you may come, but no farther. Here's where your proud waves halt. In other words, he says, Joe, where were you when I created the oceans and the the beaches and the tidal currents? And then God continues. He says, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? 
Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this, he says. He says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen my storehouses of hail? What is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed or where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the uh, thunderstorm to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? He says, stop me. Stop me if you know. He says, Job, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you arise or can you raise your voice to the clouds and send lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you saying, here we are? Who provides food for the raven? Do you know when mountain goats give birth? And so God goes on and on and on for four chapters asking these kind of questions. Why? Well, it's because Job felt poorly treated. You know, he and he, he wasn't sure God knew what he was doing. I mean, like many of us, Job felt that he knew better about the way that his life should unfold and play out, and he viewed the painful things that were happening to him as just being senseless. And God is saying to Job, Job, is that what you really believe? Is that what you think, that you know better than me? He says, you challenge my plans with words without knowledge. Think of it this way. Imagine a five-year-old kid visiting Cape Canaveral uh, right before uh, a rocket launch and going up to the lead physicist and saying, you know, that hunk of junk isn't, isn't going isn't to fly. It's too big. It's too heavy. You, you guys don't know what you're doing. Can you imagine that? What would the physicist, what would, what would the physicist, what is he going to say to that? Would he say, well, you know, let me explain the science of propulsion and, and, and run through the thrust equations with you and see what you think. Is that what he's going to do? No, he's, he's not going to, he's not going to debate a little kid who lacks the capacity to grasp the, the science of, of all that, he's going to say, son, you just need to sit down and trust me. And really, that's kind of what God is doing to Job. It's what he's saying. He says, you have, he says Job, you have a knowledge problem. You have a, a limited capacity to comprehend all this. He goes, look around you. Look at everything around you. I created all of it, the universe and everything in it. I know how it works, and I know what I'm doing, son. You need to just sit down and trust me. And so as I was reading through these chapters, as God just kept asking these questions, it seemed to me that the underlying message for us could be this, that if you believe in a God, if you have a God who is big enough and powerful enough to get mad at because he allows suffering, then you also have a God big enough and powerful enough to have good reasons for doing so that you can't possibly comprehend or even conceive of. Do you know what I'm saying? See, you can't have it, you can't have it both ways. You can say there is no God, therefore uh, there's no reason for anything. Life is, is, is just a meaningless crapshoot. Or you can say there is a God, but I can't see the reason why he allows things to happen the way they do, especially when it comes to suffering. But consider this. Just because you cannot conceive of a good reason doesn't mean there can't be a good reason for what God does or doesn't allow. True? To suggest otherwise is illogical. It's a non sequitur, which is Latin. It means it doesn't follow. The conclusion, your conclusion doesn't logically flow from your argument. I mean, to say that there can't be any good reason for God to allow suffering because you can't imagine one, well, with all due respect, is as ludicrous as a five-year-old challenging a NASA physicist because you can't imagine a rocket ship flying. It's even more ludicrous because as a finite creature, you are challenging the infinite creator. Last week, I mentioned uh, Elizabeth Elliot. She is a, a well-known Christian author, former missionary. She's written a ton of books. Uh, she's only written one novel, though, and the novel is entitled No Graven Images, and it was a fictional story about a young Christian woman, a linguist, who uh, gives up marriage and family and friends and, and, and travels to a, a very remote Ecuadorian 
a jungle to work with a primitive tribe of people who have no written language. She went there to learn the language and then translate the Bible for them. And so she goes and she gets there and with the help of a man that she meets, she starts working on this project and things go really, really well for a number of years until her friend gets really sick and she gives him a shot of penicillin that accidentally kills him. And the tribe they were working with kind of goes goes crazy because they love this guy. And in anger, they go to her and they, they take all of her translation notes, all of the written materials, all of her work, and they throw it in the river. And there it goes. Suddenly, years and years of research and writing and linguistic study and translation, everything she had sacrificed for, everything she had lived for was destroyed, leaving her life in utter disappointment. Here's a spoiler alert. That's how the book ends. That's how the novel ends. Apparently, when people started reading the book. Elizabeth Elliot got a lot of criticism. She even received some hate mail from Christians, even pastors, who didn't appreciate the ending. And who said, look, there's no way God will let a dedicated servant like that experience such a thing. No way. And Elliot's response was, well, obviously these people haven't read the book of Job. And then she said, you know, neither do they realize this story of disappointment and tragedy was based on her life experience. And so with that being the case, what's really interesting is at the end of the novel, as the main character, she writes this about suffering. She says, now in the clear light of day, I see that God, if he was merely my accomplice, has betrayed me. If on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. For God is God. And if he is God, he's worthy of my worship and service. And I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. I can't understand it. And it's, you know, when Eliot writes the words, if, I, if God was merely my accomplice, as I read that, that, that term accomplice jumped out on me and it made me stop and think, is that how I view God? Is that how I see him? Because here in Job 38, God declares, I laid the earth's foundation and brought forth all the constellations. I have created everything around you. The psalmist writes, God determines the number of stars and calls them by name. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. The New Testament affirms how God upholds all things by the word of his power. He is both creator and sustainer of everything. And if that's true, if that's true, then you tell me. Is he the kind of being we dare ask to be an assistant, to be our gopher, our personal toady? Yet there are times we treat God like that, as nothing more than an accomplice who we tell what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And then we get upset when he doesn't follow suit. Well, listen, uh, let me tell you, if that's your view of God... Okay, but I suggest your God is too small. If your God is small enough to understand and control, then he is not big enough to worship. Now, I don't think that's how God, or Job viewed God, but sometimes in the midst of suffering, we lose sight of the truth. You know what I'm saying? And so God does sort of this reality check with Job, reminding him of who is who here. Who has limits? Who doesn't? Who's all-powerful? Who isn't? Who's the creator? Who's the creature? And so, so God says all of these things to Job over these chapters, all these questions. But as I read from chapter 38 to 41, I realized what was equally important to what God says to Job is what God doesn't say to him. I mean, I get it. Job, Job wanted vindication. He wanted an explanation for his pain and suffering. He wanted to know. And he wanted God to, essentially he wanted God to show up on the scene and say, dude, I am so sorry about all this. I, uh, let me just tell you. Let me explain it to you. Let me give you my reasons for allowing it. God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And sometimes as, as readers, that fact gets lost on us because we know the reasons, right? We, we've read chapter 1 and 2. We understand the spiritual dynamics that are going on behind the scenes. We're aware of how, how the enemy, Satan, went to God and said, Man, you think Job is so wonderful? You think he's such a great, loving servant? Hurt him. 
let some bad things happen to him. And, and you'll see, he's not so great. He's, he's a phony. Job doesn't serve you for nothing. He doesn't love you. He loves all the stuff that you've allowed him to have. You know, the money, the possessions, the family, the health, the status. That's what he's about. He doesn't love you for you. If any of those things go away, he will curse you. Let him suffer and you'll see. And God responded how? God said, very well, you can do this to Job, but you can't do this. God sets limits. And he allows only so much suffering as to refute the adversary's claims. And overall, you know, Job proves God right. He never turns away. He never curses God. He never says, you know, I hate you. We're enemies. We're through. None of that because Job basically understood that his relationship to God was all about grace. He realized God owed him nothing. Remember, he said, naked I came into the world through my mother's womb. Naked I'll depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I mean, clearly Job recognized the grace of God and he stays faithful. But, you know, he was hoping for an explanation. He doesn't get one. And really, you think about it, he couldn't get one, right? I mean, because if God said to him, look, Job, I'm going to allow you to suffer in order to make you a great man whose life and and faithfulness is going to impact millions of people over thousands of years, they're going to be talking about you in the suburbs of Chicago in 2014. You're not going to believe it. It's going to be, you know, if he had did that, then Job would have never become truly great. Why? Because then he would have endured the suffering and stayed faithful to God because of what he was going to get out of it. He would have become a religious person. Because that's that's what religious people do. They try to be really good and serve God well enough in hopes of earning his favor and some kind of reward. But Job didn't have a religion with God. He had a relationship with him. He loved God. He served God. He stayed faithful because of who God is. And don't you want to be loved for who you are? You know, for who you are as a person, not for your, not for your, your looks or your money or what you can do for others, just for who you are. Same is true with God. He wants us to love him and serve him and be faithful to him because of who he is, not because of what we think we can get from him. All this to say is, regarding his suffering, Job never gets an explanation. Not a word, not a peep, nothing. He was also hoping for vindication because everybody was accusing him of some heinous crime, some wicked, wicked sin, saying that that's why God was judging him. And Job was like, look, I'm telling you, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything. And if God is judging me, remember what he said. He said, if God is judging me, then he's judging me wrongly. Remember, that's what he said. And so Job kept praying for God to answer and to vindicate him, although at one point he acknowledges God's greatness and justice and holiness and power. And he says in chapter 9, if I summon God and he actually responds, he said he, he would crush me with a storm. You know, his power will crush me. And how does God finally show up in chapter 38? As exactly that, a powerful, terrifying storm out of which comes the voice of truth, love, grace, and invitation. And Job, you know, Job isn't crushed, but he is questioned. Eventually God says, now about this whole treating you wrongly idea and and this personal vindication, he says, Job, would you condemn me to justify yourself? Here's my Reiki translation. He says, must I, your God, be judged so you can be justified? Think about that for a second. Because for Job, the logical and immediate answer was no. But the startling long-term answer for all of humanity was yes, right? I mean, is that not the message of the gospel? The good news that in Jesus, God himself is condemned, is judged, is crushed, so we as flawed, finite human beings might be justified? You know, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the infinite, terrifying storm of God's divine justice gets satisfied, while at the exact same time, God's love and grace is most fully proved and demonstrated. And once again, as we've seen throughout this whole, throughout this, this, this whole ancient document, once again comes a glimpse of the good news. 
of God's plan of redemption, the news of grace. And it all points directly to Jesus. So what is Job's ultimate response to God? Well, in chapter 42, verse 1, we're told that Job replies, Okay, Lord, I get it. He says, I I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Translation, he says, you are God and I am not. And therefore, I humbly admit I cannot possibly comprehend everything about you, let alone what you do or how you do it or when you do it or why you do it. Job says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent. What does he mean? Job is saying, God, I had this abstract idea of your power and greatness and grace but now, now I have experienced it. And so I repent. So I, I turn away from my demand uh, for explanation and vindication. He says, just knowing your love and grace is enough for me, even in the midst of suffering. And so alone and destitute and near death, Job finds peace, not in his circumstances, but in his God. And so what does God do? Well, he actually grants Job vindication. He goes to Job's moralistic friends and he says, you know, I'm angry with you guys because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly, i.e. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are also the recipients of God's grace, not to mention Job's forgiveness, which offers us this side note, namely that when we're in pain and we're suffering for whatever reason, and our family members or friends say dumb things or act in ways that aren't helpful, and look, we all do that now and then. When that happens, don't hate them. Don't resent them. Don't become bitter. Bitter, Bitterness is not healthy for anybody. But instead, you know, we, we all do it. We all say and do dumb things at times. So when it happens, instead forgive them and pray for them like Job. And then we're told after Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Job died an old man and full of years. Here's my, here's my Ray K summary. After an incredible amount of personal suffering, as unexpectedly as anything, everything else, Job gets healed and God gives him back all kinds of good things, family, friends, possessions, money, his health, things which in many respects aren't necessarily safe to have until we're willing to love and serve God without them. As I've heard it put, you never really know how much you need God until God is all you got. So I climbed in my car on Thursday, heading into the office, and I turned on the radio, and I heard the rock band R.E.M. singing these words. When your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone. When you're sure you've had enough of this life, hang on. Don't let yourself go, because everybody cries, and everybody hurts sometimes. Sometimes everything is wrong. Hold on. I heard R.E.M. singing that, and I I figured, you know, Job could have written that tune. He could have written the lyrics to that song, right? I mean, everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes. Sometimes everything seems wrong. It's true. And Job Job learned that lesson. It's why I called this series Life in Utz, because like Job, we all find ourselves living there sometimes in this land of pain and suffering. And as I noted a few weeks back, you know, I'm not an expert on the topic of suffering. I'm not. I don't know everything about it. But I do know this much. I know that if we don't anticipate it, if we don't ask questions about it, if we don't wrestle with the complexity of life in a broken world, and if we don't acknowledge ahead of time that all that we have in life is a result of God's grace, naked we came in, naked we'll depart, then when suffering comes unexpectedly without any justifiable reason and absolutely no explanation, we risk being devastated 
and left without hope. And that's why, that's why, that's what makes Job's life and experience so meaningful and so helpful because his story is not just about a guy who suffers, it's about so much more. It's about the God who created us with his own hands. The God who loves us intensely, who graciously forgives and covers our sin. The God who is both judge and redeemer who himself enters our world and suffers with us, suffers for us. He is condemned, he is judged, he is crushed, so we might be justified. Don't you see? Job points us to the incarnation, to the resurrection, to forgiveness, and to life beyond the grave. Job points us to Jesus, our one and only true hope. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, over the last few days, the song of that... I heard on the radio just the lyrics are kind of haunting me, this idea that that everybody cries, that everybody hurts sometimes. Sometimes everything seems wrong, and that's how it is in this life of ours at times, where things happen and we can't explain, where pain in our lives is unavoidable and where we we don't understand it and we wrestle with the why of it all. And and so I, I pray that before suffering hits us, that we would be we would be wise enough to ask questions now, to think through the issues now of what we believe about you, our God, and that we're limited in our understanding. And with humility, it just makes sense to say it's impossible for us to comprehend all that you do, how you do it, why you do it, when you do it. But we know this. We know that you love us. We know that you're a gracious God for all that we have is a measure of your grace. And whether it's whether we, we keep it or we lose it, you know, no matter where we find ourselves on, on the mountaintops or in the valleys, good times and bad, you are consistently God. The God who understands suffering, who has experienced it because you came to be with us. You suffered with us. You suffered for us in Jesus. And because of that, you hold us in good times and bad. And so we, like little children, say we believe and we trust you no matter what. We offer this worship to you, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen.